Welcome to another week of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. This week's guest is Nick Moss of Functional NeuroHealth. I'm super excited to have Nick on the show to share how he integrates the nervous system into his training methodologies. Kind of playing off last week's show, we talk about physiology and how there's so much occurring beneath the surface level. Behavior and the results we see play out before our eyes are minuscule in comparison to what's happening at a subconscious level. A lot of the conversation flowed around stress and threat assessment and how implicit reflexive patterns guide movement choices. The conversation ends by discussing primitive reflexes and why reflexes may remain unintegrated in adult populations. Nick covers some of the more common ones and also provides some ideas on how to deal with them. Really interesting conversation, and Nick is super sharp. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. My guest today is Nick Moss of Functional Neuro Health. How's it going, Nick? Good, mate. How are you? Doing well, man. You're my first guest from down under, so whenever we're recording and all this stuff, it was fun going through all the different time zones and everything, but super excited to have a guest from Australia as well to have a guest focusing on the different things that you focus on. I love a lot of the topics I've seen you discuss. Your name is Functional Neuro Health, all the things that you put out there. So we're going to be looking at functional neurology today uh, and kind of how things occur subconsciously and how we can also bring them to the forefront and make changes uh, by deriving the correct inputs into things. So we're going to be looking at making some changes at the brain-based level. So some brain-based solutions offered today. Before we get started, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about who you are, what you offer, um, just give a little background about yourself. So yeah, I do, I do a few different things, but I would say I'm a, a brain-based practitioner. My journey in this field started after a career in the military. So when you get out of the military, you sort of, you go into one of three things, or you go into security, or you go into the mines, or you go into fitness. So I went into fitness, and very early on, I got into the rehab side of things, and then sort of just went from there and realized I could sort of rehab people with breathing and core, core work and stuff like that, and then just progressed from there and started to learn um, more holistic approaches. So in Australia, we have uh, like kinesiology and sports kinesiology. I studied that, so it's different to the U.S., form of kinesiology so it's a bit more uh looking at things holistically looking through the nervous system and that got me involved in sort of muscle testing and things like that based off of applied kinesiology really loved that but then i wanted to do more work with my hands so then i got into um studying a degree in myotherapy which is the sort of gold standard of, of manual therapy here and it's sort of similar in a way to it's like a cross between sort of physiotherapy and osteopathy in a way. But at the same time that I was studying that, I started to see, I was really interested in the nervous system and I started to see all this stuff sort of pop up around seven or eight years ago, which was more so explaining, uh, you know, when you learn about neuroscience and neurology, it's all pretty bland. Content was explaining how that information can be used in a, in a clinical framework. And so uh, that was uh, with the AMN, so Applied Movement Neurology Academy with PDTR and a few other systems out there and it's just basically been like seven or eight years straight of just learning as much as I can about the nervous system and then integrating that into my practice and the more and more I do that the you know the uh, the better results I get with my clients the quicker results longer lasting as well so yeah I look at things very holistically but I would say it's through that prism of the brain and the nervous system and how it's sort of set up as a hierarchical structure to um, protect us from threat basically 
Yeah, and a lot of the things you offered there, great jumping off point, because we are going to focus on threat. We are going to focus on kind of how we perceive different things. Those are going to be a couple of our early talking points. And for those that, if you've listened to my podcast a good bit, then you know we talk a lot about this. But for those that feel intimidated by trying a brain-based approach, if you study it for long enough, if you look at it, it's very predictable in the, in the pattern you were talking about, like a top-down structure you were talking about. Uh, once you begin to see it, it's like you can't unsee it. The problem is you have to be willing to put yourself in that situation, look at things from a different point of view, look at things from a top-down approach, brain-based approach, rather than a muscular approach, because you can drive yourself nuts in isolation uh, without without truly realizing the globalized patterns of the way that things function throughout the brain and throughout the central nervous system and the, and the PNS as well, all the sensory inputs, right. That, that we derive so much from. So kind of to start us out, because we're going to talk a lot about experience and threat um, and how to change some of these different things. A quote that I saw you pull, and we'll, it'll kind of lead us into a, one of our first main talking points, is you said 0.01% of what you're experiencing is experienced consciously. That means that we're experiencing around 10,000 films simultaneously while we're only consciously aware of one of them. So that's crazy because I've been reading The Master and the Emissary too, and it kind of talks about the split brain and then how we have all these different thoughts and reality and how each hemisphere is at battle with one another. But there's just so many things occurring below the surface level. Uh, and you also offered something kind of like the performance iceberg along with that. And if you were to look at that image, all you would be able to see is behavior and results. And, you know, I feel like that's what we often see. Our clients come in or our athletes come in. We see movement patterns. We see the outcome of those movement patterns but we don't think about all the different things underneath surface level that can be impacting them. So let's talk a little bit about some of those things that are below surface level and how they can impact what we see on the surface. I think the most, one of the most impressive things about the nervous system is not what it can do. It's what it actually inhibits. There is a structure in the brain called the basal ganglia and that's its primary role is to store that store our motor programs, which are responses to stimuli around us. But it also its primary role is to inhibit all the other ones and only choose the appropriate response. So it's just I, th I think that in and of itself is, is pretty impressive that there's all this information um, that we're exposed to through our life and in our, in our nervous system unconsciously and reflexively will basically scan that information and it will tag it as either a threat or, or non-threat. That's really what it's doing. And all the rest is sort of context and story. And that kind of builds our experience from a sort of physiological level and then eventually bleeds upwards into a, a conscious experience of, of the world. That's one way of looking at it. So, you know, if we think of that, say, 95-5 rule, that 95%, 95% of um, what we feel and do or what's going on in our body is basically processed subconsciously through these networks within the brain and even within the uh, peripheral nervous system and the uh, autonomic nervous system. Most people, when they're trying to change something and get different results, will try and change our behavior. But then we need to work out, okay, what's underneath behavior? Well, it's generally our thought patterns. Great, let's change those. What's underneath, what drives thought? It's emotive, emotional responses. Where does that come from? That's the limbic system. That's a deeper structure of the brain. And emotional emotion is basically a, a cognitive way to describe a physiological feeling, a feeling that's generated within the body. Where do feelings arise from? Our physiology. Feelings arise from interoceptive perception of ourselves. 
we really need to look at all these layers. And I think the, the bottom layer, the, the, the physiology is really, as we know, it's run by this autonomic nervous system. So that's primarily unconscious because if it wasn't, we'd be a lot of time trying to digest our food, control our heart rate, all that sort of stuff. We need to look at that base level and, and then sort of move upwards from that because at all times, that part of the nervous system, that limbic system is really decoding the environment, both external and internal. And this is a big one is that we think of, most of this information coming from outside in, whereas around 80% of it is coming from inside up, right? So interoceptive. And these are all, you know, when we use these percentages and numbers and stuff, they're all sort of arbitrary, right? We don't know exactly what it is, what it is but we can use them as a frame of reference. Around about 80% of sensory information that the brain is trying to decode at any one time is coming from the body up, so interoceptively. And the, the other 20% is from the environment out and even related to proprioception. Kind of jumping into a couple of those different things there, like whenever you actually look at what you have labeled there, feelings, emotions, thoughts, those are definitely all going to be interoceptive. Uh, and I always push for people to find like inner feeling because I know this is a little, sometimes you, you have to like balance carefully because sometimes i feel like oh i feel like a, a yogi or something speaking about this but whenever i want to talk about the the methods of neurology but people lack the ability to go inside and actually fill structures and to derive proper sensory integration from certain parts like if you have somebody i'm sure that you could speak to this who has a certain deficit just having them close their eyes and then perform certain movement patterns is going to tell you, is it visual, vestibular, proprioceptive, putting proprioceptive inputs into certain parts. That's what we were speaking about, being able to derive interoception into the body through certain parts, correct? Um, and being able to feel certain structures, correct? Yeah, look, I mean, I suppose you're more talking about the conscious experience of interoception. Yeah, yeah. Which, But we, we, we also need to realize that most interoception is, is unconscious, and it has to be because it's we think about the gut brain axis to the vagus nerve, right? This is happening all the time. That's primarily unconscious until we perceive it as a feeling. But what you're sort of alluding to there was developing that, that sense of interoception, which is a skill. It, it is actually a skill. And as you know, if you're someone that works with, with people and clients, and I'm sure many of the listeners here do, some people have that quite well. So when you do something with them, they're like, oh, I can really feel that. You know, they've got a good sense of interoception. Other people you do the same thing with and they're, they're like a brick. You know, they just can't really perceive that. So they, they're lacking that conscious aspect of being able to um, sense themselves. And I think it does correlate across to what I've seen, and this is sort of more anecdotally, um, is that when there's high levels of threat, perceived threat, even if it's subconscious, they're going to be more externally fo uh, focused. So they're going to have a harder time. Their brain's gonna, not going to let them go inwards as quickly. One quote that I had down that, that ties to that great is that basically any being, be it, be it a human being or be it any creature uh, that's living in an environment where it needs to defend itself, it says, from predators and find enough food is going to form certain concepts and place things within categories. And the categorization we've mostly been referencing here is threat or non-threat, basically. So because we need to have those needs met and in doing those things, evolutionary we would have to worry about being around the watering hole, right? Or becoming someone's food uh, from an evolutionary perspective. So that's just kind of a side note that I had wrote down. Uh, I thought that that would blend nicely into the conversation. And something else that I would like to kind of throw in there is 
intensity of experience, because what I've actually seen is the storage of our experiences and our memories, which we're going to get to more later on, have a lot to do with the intensity in which they're actually, I guess, derived. Um, is that something that you familiarize yourself with as well, as far as what it would actually release um, and how you would respond to a given situation? It's a bit that ties into that. So what would derive that someone perceives something as intense will determine sort of how their nervous system is at that moment in time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if they're already at a high level of threat uh, interoceptively or extraoceptively, so they might have had previous experiences and they haven't experienced, they may perceive that as more intense whereas opposed to the person next to them might not. And that will just further ramp up their threat response. And it will, yeah, obviously the, 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 the perception of one's, one's perception of that threat level, which can, is obviously going to be very individualized based off those factors, will determine how much impact that has and how much compensation the nervous system has to use in order for you to return back to some sort of balanced state after uh, dealing with that threat. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense because I feel like it's a good blend to kind of what we're talking, we're going to be talking about with threat and stress here in a moment. Well, what I had noted here is that basically in our hippocampus, like we have stored electricity because you, you've actually, the way in which we store these things is through electricity. Then we are electric in our nervous system. Uh, and when we experience something that's similar to the synaptic connection, of that intense experience, then that would be reinforced. So that would be a way that something could be deemed as a threat that might not be the exact same, or, you know, that we could actually learn something and it could be beneficial. So we're, we're looking probably both ways there as far as how you experience something, correct? 100%. Kind of jumping into our next talking point here, tying to what we're talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the experience of stress and how it functions at a subcortical uh, level and how it may be responsive for many of our adaptive behaviors that we look for. So let's talk about the function of stress first, which I deem to be one of the most important things. Uh, in the podcast that I just recorded right before this one, we talked about the fact that stress is beneficial uh, and we actually should be seeking stress. The only problem is that in our modern world, stress seems to pour on from tons of different directions, right? So let's talk a little bit about how the brain experiences stress. Let's talk about some of those subcortical structures. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the old and new brain uh, and some of those structures there. And like some of this stuff we've already sort of touched on as well, but it comes back to that. I'm, I'm in agreement with you with, with stress. The stress is like, it's not good, not, not, not bad. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a function of the world we live in. But it's all about threshold. So if we've got a, if we have too much stress that goes over a threshold and continues to, that's when it becomes negative, right? But essentially, how does it work? Well, when is it considered stress, or when is it considered a threat? Are we talking about threat or stress here? Let's let's start with stress, and then let's let's talk about how they can blend into a threat, I guess, over time, and and then threats how they could stand alone themselves as well. So stress yeah, so, first. Well, my understanding of it is that. Um, we have, you know, all, all around us is uh, raw information, it's raw data, um, and the nervous system's job through its reflexes is to is to decode that information through the sensors. Um, and then also once that information comes in, uh, it then relays, relays back to the sensory areas, the posterior parietal cortex, and um, then the, the limbic system and, and the, the hippocampus. And there's a sort of reference point around that stimuli. Um, and, and it brings in all factors, including like 
what proprioceptive position that you're in. And it will determine very, very quickly whether that information, like what's, what's the context of that information. And if your brain then um, decides that uh, that information is fairly neutral, then you'll be able to sort of respond to it with alertness, but you won't become highly aroused. Um, if your brain uh, determines that, that it is, um, it's kind of threatening, then it will trigger one of two responses, put us into that fight flight response uh, via the sympathetic system, um, which will either, you know, sort of go into a sort of more, more of an assertive response or a rage response. So we'll, get, we'll go towards it or we'll flee and run away or make ourselves small. That's probably the most common response that humans go into. And like most of the population, we're sort of living in that to some level. Because these, um, these things that cause stress and they could be, you know, environmental, they could be coming from our food, they can be coming from um, driving our car or whatever it is, any, any type of experience that could be having an accident or um, hearing, you know, of a friend passing or whatever it is, all these things blend in. Basically, what can happen then is if, if we get a threat that's even super, super uh, threatening, we'll go into response which is called a, an immobilization response, which is to do with the dorsal vagus, dorsal vagus nerve, and we'll sort of shut down. And that's more linked to a, like a sort of reptilian response where, you know, you've seen a, you ever seen like a lizard in your backyard and you walk near it and it freezes, it stops breathing because, you know, those, those reptiles, they don't, they can go without breathing. Whereas human beings can't, but that system is still embedded within our nervous system. So if a threat, if stress is sufficient enough to be a, a life threat or severe threat, we'll go into that response. And um, it's not it's not a good thing. But hey, how does that? Real, a real quick thing. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was thinking about this because I was doing breath holds like, actually before we jumped on. And a lot of the yeah. times, like I know it can have, you know, physiology and all these other things attached to it. But what you just referenced as far as the reptilian response, like, I find sometimes whenever I'm doing breath holds or doing box breathing or things, my breathing sometimes like it gets unbearable to do the hold. Like yeah. my sink is completely off. Like, is that perhaps that subcortical uh, response that we're talking about where stress has been like really piled on for the day and perhaps it's manifesting it through our breathing at that time? 100%. That, this is where breath work comes in and why it's, it's, so important is a, it's becoming such a big thing these days is because it taps directly into these systems and when you're you know it's so tied in breath is so tied into these systems both both systems all these systems really that you know because we've habitually been breathing a certain way and that changes due, due to our stress levels then when we go into this this response we have to we get these signals from these threat reflexes saying, hey, 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 you're running out of oxygen or whatever it is. And they, they signal the, the alarm systems and you start to freak out. And that's actually completely normal. There's actually absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's just the, that's just the nervous system functioning as it should. However, we have been trained to, when we experience a, an unpleasant stimuli, is to sort of move away from it, which in a survival sense actually makes sense, right? But if we're trying to overcome something, if we move away from it, how are we going to overcome it? So this is bringing in that good stress, bad stress. We're actually generating what could be perceived as a negative stress. But if we can be calm with it, we can overcome those reflexes. And this is what I have to, because I do a lot of breath training with a lot of people. And it's like, it's at the foundation of what I do with all my rehab and everything. And sometimes I'll give someone some drills and I uh, teach them and sort of give them a bit of a rundown of what to expect. And they go away and do it. And then they, 
they get stressed so they stop doing it and it, and it makes them stressed and it's like no no so what you're experiencing there is actually quite an it's there's nothing abnormal about that that's actually in, that's embedded within your body that's that's good what we're trying to do here is slowly and and progressively overcome those reflexes so you develop a, a threshold and a buffer towards it so that when that, when you next get those signals because of the oxygen deficiency or perceived lack of oxygen your body doesn't go into those alarm systems so quickly so therefore your threshold to stress has improved and will continue to improve if you keep training yourself comfortably through that process that all makes perfect sense and i just want to throw in something else that i kind of had as a side note there that i had noted like i like to look at the big picture and i like to like look really small and like kind of what you were speaking to is something that i had noted of the universe and how it functions in all things like we have like this want to be coherent and to be unified and be one and move towards things to me that's like you know whenever you see something and you want to move towards it that's good uh and then we also have forces that tend towards incoherent separation and just wanting to get away and really it's that tension that we were talking about right there as far as like allowing threat and stress uh to guide us throughout our everyday occurrences i feel like and uh it's just a polarity of this idea of polarity and the existence on the opposite ends of the spectrum absolutely runs around in cycles um that you can see running through this conversation for sure yeah i mean it's, it's about um finding balance within the polarities and you can look at all ancient medicines as well you know chinese medicine the yin and the yang and all that sort of stuff you know it's about finding that balance point between the two as soon as we name something and this is where you know issues around chronic pain and neuroscience really come in is that as soon as we name something as bad or painful you know we've, we've named it and it, and then it, it, we sort of want to avoid that so if we can be sort of more neutral around things and perceive them as they, as they actually are, then those, those perceived negatives and positives, so the negatives we want to move away from, the positives we want to move towards, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if we base our existence off that, then how we ever, it's, it's all based on outside in, but if we can train ourselves from the inside out, then we can choose in any moment how to, how, how to navigate any situation. That makes sense. Absolutely. I had another thing there that said we're transmitters, not originators, as far as like looking at things. And that transitions really well to our next talking point, which is about symptoms, which you just referenced. Okay. Whenever something pops up, we call it a symptom. We give it a name. Uh, and you, you've referenced pain multiple times here. So I've seen you reference the human body as a bioelectrical uh, signaling system. So let's talk a little bit about whenever inputs become too noisy, um, how our outputs can become distorted and how finding noise in the system is not bad. It actually can be quite useful because it tells you where you need to direct your attention to and where your fix actually lies. In regards to the nervous system, it's all about signals. So high signals, low signals, and um, we want to balance signals in the system. And when, when the system perceives threats, um, whether they're external or internally generated, what will usually happen is the signal, the electrical impulse, will, will go higher, too high. And that will actually usually create patterns of weakness within the nervous system and then so that in and of itself you've got a double threat there so you've got perceived threat then weakness which which also creates more threat 
right? And then there's a compounding effect from that. And then when we're talking about the concept of noise, that's part of it as well. But then you have, so you have a bioelectrical system, you have the nervous system, and they're actually kind of slightly separate. So the bioelectrical system is more run through the fascial network. It's like a, a direct current and an alternating current system. Um, that's through the work of Dr. Robert Becker. And then that but it serves with, works with, moves more through the glial cell network that works with the nervous system. It's not exactly the same, um, but it works with. And uh, again, if there is too much kind of static noise within a circuit or a bunch of circuits, and when I'm saying circuits, I'm saying sort of nodes or pathways or, or systems within the nervous system. When there's too much noise there, again, you'll get patterns of weakness or patterns of dysfunction. So when we think of, uh, you know, an event happening, we, we might think there's a, say we have, um, we experience a trauma. There's obviously an emotional, there's an emotional factor to that as well. Okay. So there's an, there's an emotional imprint, but at the same time, there will be a postural response as well, frozen in that. Then there'll be a, you know, a change in your breathing as well. Then there'll be a change potentially in your digestion, maybe even an immune response at the same time. So you have a pattern of dysfunction in, relate, in relation to uh, stimuli, which if not dealt with, things happen and we deal with them, right? We don't usually feel the symptoms, but the more things happen and the more noise that's generated within the system, the more likely over time that those, those, those patterns of dysfunction will bleed into our conscious awareness and arise as symptomology. And that's why, you know, I always say to my, my clients is like, if I, just try, if I just treated your symptoms, I would have been out of practice 10 years ago because I'm looking at your functions and your patterns, functions and your patterns. And usually if we, we clear the, we, we look at your functions and we, and we get that function as optimal as possible and we, and we clear these threats and clear these patterns, you know, nine times out of 10, that results in symptomatic change, which sometimes can be instant sometimes can take days, weeks, months, even years. It just is dependent on the individual's threshold, how much noise is in their system. Yeah, that's that's kind of my approach to that. And again, kind of speaking to some of these different things as far as the idea, because once, once the signal goes down, you would probably describe that situation as harmonious. And before there can be harmony, there must have been a difference so that we can understand what true harmony and optimization really feels like. Uh, and, and a lot of the times it's like that aha moment that you experience with people whenever you make small, subtle changes uh, to lifestyle and to different and even to nervous system things, inputs. You just see like that aha moment where they truly experience harmony and a true uh, all the statics removed. Um, I've seen you describe it like a radio. So if we can talk a little bit and you, you reference kind of like the fascia system, like me having David Weck on, we talked about the fascia system a little bit. And he talked about the fascia system being like a root system, basically, uh, for our CNS. So some of the things you were saying there are definitely I've heard referenced before uh, and definitely makes sense. So if we can talk a little bit more about how you would examine uh, your methodologies for examining uh, for noise. Like, do you have protocols whenever people come in as far as examining for proficiency uh, within certain movements or uh, what are some of the different ways that you would examine people for deficiencies or too much noise within their system? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I got lots of, lots of different ways of looking at stuff, but there's, there's, it's obviously there's still case by case as well. Cause I do work with quite a broader array of things, but I generally, regardless, 
not always, but mostly we'll start with working through the higher level threat systems. So for me, that is the, um, if there's any primitive reflexes such as a fit, well, I know we're going to go into this a bit later, but um, talking about the, there's like a fear paralysis reflex. If that's on, um, their, their nervous system's on alert. So I've got a, it's a very quick way of assessing that. They'll basically, if I provide a stimuli that they're not um, aware of and they're, they're not aware is coming, and it usually will create like a global weakness pattern. And then I'll find where that cause is and then clear that and then can often can create an amazing shift. Now, not everyone has that. It's around 30 to 40% of people. If that's not there. That's great. I'll just move on. If I'm looking at a top-down approach, I'll go from the cranial nerves down. So I'll, clear, I'll, I'll assess each cranial nerve in particular, I pay a, a lot of attention to the vestibular system because the vestibular system is uh, probably our most uh, dynamic proprioceptive uh, system. It has a feed-forward and feedback relationship with all the muscles, tissues, uh, joints, ligaments, and everything in the body. So from a movement perspective, it's extremely important from a postural perspective, but also from a, um, a mind balance perspective, it's extremely important too because it's very connected to our limbic system. So you can, like people with anxiety, help and have vestibular dysfunction. So that's one of the high-level things I try and get through first in the first one or two sessions. And we'll bring it back to the original complaint that they've got as well. So if someone also has you know, uh, lower back pain or an issue like that, I'll, you know, I'll basically assess their function. I'll do their range of movement assessments. I'll look at their gait, um, look at their swing. I'll look at their postural patterns and we'll do some muscle testing around that area. And um, say, for instance, you know, we, we usually muscle inhibition is resulting from, you know, structural, physiological or emotional dysfunction. It's going to be one of those three things. And we can just clear our way through these, um, these imbalances one by one. And then, you know, each time you're clearing a pattern of dysfunction and then um, the strength is coming back and then that's reinforcing to the nervous system to calm down and chill, chill out a bit. And, you know, they look better, they feel better, they, they move better. And uh, I, I just don't treat the diagnosis. I use it as a bit of information and of where to start and what to look at. But I generally will, um, yeah, especially the more threatened someone is, and I'll usually pick that up through their history as well. Uh, the more likely I'll start from that top-down approach. But that's not everyone as well. So if we have an acute injury as well, uh, like I had a, uh, someone a few weeks ago and she like um, broke her ankle like really badly or like it's actually fifth metatarsal. And uh, I just said, just come straight in. And it was the first session was basically getting her out of that threat response. So stimulating the vagus nerve, really just calming down that autonomic nervous system and doing some red light therapy and things like that to enable because what if you're in that threat response it's much harder for the body to heal so it's always case by case the way i do it but i'm seeing more and more and more and more as, as things are progressing and the world's getting a bit more intense is that most people do require an element of top down but it's not everyone i don't, I don't want to be someone that is like fixed in a box as a practitioner i will assess each individual on their own merit, but I am finding more and more it's, it's coming from those high-level threats downwards and that has a descending impact in a, in a positive way on, on, on the person's nervous system, which is really the barrier between success and failure on that level. Awesome. Just a couple of things to throw in there to see if, if you're in agreement or if you can expand on them. Uh, as far as like the neural hierarchy of our input system, visual, vestibular, proprioceptive, my understanding is that the visual 
is king. I hate to be, I hate to be so directed, but the visual is your first layer. And then it goes down into the vestibular and then proprioceptive. So it's kind of like a layered approach. Uh, do you utilize that to inform uh, the way in which you would assess? Would, would That's typically what I would say would be a more, I guess, Z health, what I've familiarized myself or what I've seen uh, as far as a neural hierarchy like that. So are you in agreement on that? Is, what, is that one of the ways that you would look at it, like a top-down approach from there? Uh, is that one of the ways you would inform your examination process? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like, I mean, the visual vestibular, they can go either either. They're very linked. And if you have an issue in one, you have, can have an issue in, in another. Um, and often both. Uh, but also we have to put um, breathing probably even above those two, to be honest. And now it's not like, and you can't always correct breathing and everything, all of those things will impact breathing. So any threat will impact breathing, but breathing is often a function that we have to consciously really start to train to help everything else sort of fit in. But yeah, it's definitely, yeah, definitely a visual vestibular and it sort of flows down from there. Um, you know, there are, there are connections between those, vestibular ocular pathways and a really quick screen I might do with someone is just grab a, a muscle and uh, just start seeing how when I will just put their eyes in a certain direction and seeing if you get a, a weakness response if you do it could be related to their visual system or it could also be related reflexively to the to the vestibular system and you might start sort of um, testing testing uh, muscle strength while they turn the head left turn the head right move it down move it up and uh, move it in different directions and uh, if you get a weakness response, it's usually not always, but it can be related to, to the vestibular system. And you were speaking about light therapy too. I was wondering if you could, I didn't have this on the talking points, but if you could expand on that, you spoke about red light. Are you speaking about like, uh, I've seen them, the, uh, the direct kind of red light uh, options that you can put on different portions uh, for the vestibular? Is that, is that what you're using there? And can you talk a little oh, bit about how frequency of light uh, might could uh, determine different responses and be used for healing or different inputs as well. It's definitely not a, like a, 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 I'm not super knowledgeable on that in terms of the, the, what the frequencies do, but in that particular session, it was just using the red light and infrared lamp um, actually over the injury site, which is, um, you know, bringing more blood flow to that, to that area. It's improving the mitochondria around that area. At the same time as we we're doing um, some nervous system work, so multi-layered sort of approach, multi, multi-dimensional sort of approach. But I have used the red light on, say, the vagus nerve. So through the neck, I've just placed it on, just above, um, you know, around the carotid area where the vagus nerve runs through, and uh, seen like you know people's bodies just go into full relaxation mode after doing that. So it's obviously, you know, nerves they love oxygen. Um, so when you, when you put that over where a nerve is, it's obviously going to improve the functioning of that nerve. If you improve the functioning of something like the vagus nerve, it's going to have a global effect. But in terms of on, sometimes I'll put it directly just on the top of their head. Now I'm not hundred percent sure exactly what I'm stimulating there, but I've seen again, that has a positive impact. You're just sort of bringing light into the brain. Um, and there is research on, like uh, when I was studying a bit about traumatic brain injuries, there was some research on uh, people's uh, symptoms worsening um, when photons uh, light in, uh, goes away from the brain. So when they trap light in the brain, they reduce inflammation. So it definitely has an anti-inflammatory effect um, and something that is is a tool that I'm sort of still playing around with. And there's obviously a lot more information I need to know about that, but um 
it definitely does work local to an injury and also you can put it over um, nerves or other structures kind of almost like uh, if you were to put like heat in that area um, the, the way you could use that uh, with say you could do that so it's like a if someone had a previous injury from like five, 10 years ago, but it hasn't fully resolved, even just doing that over that site, even though they've got say like a, say it's, they've got a foot injury, but they've got back pain. You, you, it wouldn't be um, unsurprising to have a, a sort of effect on the back pain or the way the, the foot loads and then that transfers back up to the chain. So it's, it's another way of reducing threat around the perceived threat area. All very good stuff. And it, it makes a lot of sense what you're talking about as far as like the heat um, and all that stuff, because I've seen it referenced as far as being used for like RPR interchangeably with actually doing it uh, manually with your hands. And I've heard Chris Corfus speak on it. So that's why I was interested. He's talked about using different frequencies, different colors and, and how they can communicate throughout the body and, and uh, serve as a different input, definitely different than what we're uh, normal or used to. Um, so looking at a couple more talking points here, I'd like to talk about implicit memory and uh, how that can, I guess, transfer to implicit response. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but just to kind of drive that point home. And then let's talk about primitive reflexes, uh, because we've talked a lot about reflexes uh, already. So let's talk about what primitive reflexes are and kind of how those things are integrated over time. So let's first talk about uh, how the nervous system carries implicit memory. And that's kind of what I was speaking to whenever I was talking about experience and intensity and uh, synapses and then firing based off of these memories. But we have so many different memories that are, you know, within us at a subconscious level that we're unaware of, you know, that are just existing. So let's talk about the two different types of memory, implicit versus explicit, and then the role of the implicit response to respond reflexively to stimuli as a threat. Yeah, so we have implicit memory, implicit memory. So explicit memory is what we can consciously recall, uh, like remembering someone's name, remembering what you did um, two years ago, etc. You can consciously recall that. And then you have implicit memory, which is the understanding that your subconscious nervous system is, has actually um, imprinted everything that you've ever experienced. And, not, and a lot of it is not brought to conscious awareness, although it can affect you consciously through like a roundabout way. And that's all stored in these sort of, I'd probably, probably the spinal mesencephalic pathways within the brain, these sort of threat pathways and stored into stored in the limbic system and the um, anterior cingulate, but they're not always connected to the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is what you generally will fire up when we consciously recall something, which is an explicit memory. Um, but uh, in our implicit memory, we might, have, we might just, the brain might choose to not remember it and it might be if, for a good reason, for like, for instance, with trauma, you know, this is where a lot of people, uh, if they go through and they can, this can happen spontaneously as well. They might smell something, you know, and that smell triggers, goes right back into the, um, to the limbic system. Again, that sensory stimuli going in, goes back into the limbic system and then triggers a memory, which now that it had just been sitting there dormant. And, uh, and now then hippocampus grabs it, brings it up and it becomes an explicit memory. And then, but that memory itself becomes traumatic. So then, yeah, that's just an example of it, but we want that to happen. We don't want to, we don't want to actually remember everything because that'd be a lot of mental energy and mental excess. And that's what I was going back to before the, the most impressive thing of the nervous system is its ability to inhibit all the things around us. And then what was the other part of it was, uh, how does that just how our implicit memory can drive implicit responses, uh, and how those might be like a, th a threat response whenever it's not truly intended. 
Yeah, so that's yeah. Going back to the example, when if someone smells, you go into a room, a therapist room, and they've got essential oils burning, and it's kind of and even you know, light too, right? Like even light could light sure. or something in your visual field, like we've been referencing. I, I've heard that reference with concussions too. I know that's kind of getting beyond explicit implicit memory, but it would recall it back, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, anything that's perceived, anything that's part of that sensory package, that sensory package of that stimuli so there could have been a threatening scenario and in that scenario there was, it was something coming in from the side side view so then their peripheral vision is part of that sensory package and it grabs that whole that sensory package then is attached to an implicit memory which then becomes conscious um, the, and then the, the physiological response will be a threat response so it could be a withdrawal response or it could be a pattern of weakness or a pattern of dysfunction symptomology you know any type of symptom out there there is a there is a system of medicine called um germanic new medicine very controversial i don't know if you've heard of it but he, he the guy that um sort of put it together he he basically you know this is where it goes back to these sort of emotional responses that basically he said that all chronic illness is as a result of a shock trauma that's that's um trying to deal that the body's trying to deal with it and so um interesting with that and it's all tied in with you know implicit responses implicit memory so the body will always react to stimuli around us and we might not perceive that for a long period of time going back to brain injuries for instance people won't often they might not experience symptoms of a brain injury from, from 5 10 15 years after after the event why is that you know sometimes it can be yeah it's often like a trigger like another accident or something some sensory experience that then re-triggers it and uh, it becomes conscious. Yeah. That, that all kind of, that all ties it together and nicely because it, it puts it probably in terminology that we would be familiar with. I think everybody would realize the power of a memory uh, and how we recall things. And then just tying together that we have things that are subconscious and then things that are at surface level, because back to the first talking point of the conversation, we have 10,000 movies perhaps playing out in our head and we're only aware of one. Uh, so we're extremely biased to our own experience and occasionally life comes along and kind of slaps us in the face. And, and uh, that's kind of what you get there as far as a, a threat response or a reflexive response that might be out of the ordinary. And whenever you're, whenever you tie this to athletic development and athletic means whenever you're looking at bodies that are moving in less than optimal patterns, this is, you know, a walking bundle of habits that they're, unaware of that they've developed over a lifetime that's subcortical and subconscious and underneath surface level. So that's just kind of tying it all back to what we've been speaking to uh, and kind yeah. of, you know, I guess putting it in a focal point there. Yeah. But tying it back to performance, like the body doesn't lie. If you're looking at an athlete and you know, they're, you know, they're screwing up their face when they're trying to learn something, you know, their mouth breathing, um, you know, they sort of grimace their face, you know, you watch them, you know, if you're in a, a gym and, and there's lots of noise, like how are they reacting to the noise? So all these things can play into it and they might just have a, you might need to, you need to watch someone's threshold, whether you're dealing with someone to try and get them out of pain or whether you're trying to um, improve their performance as a professional athlete. You know, it's the same, the same rules apply. If you can, in that learning process, reduce the threat by looking at their body, at the nervous system, at the, the subtle uh, cues it's giving you, um, then they're in a much better position to, to take on what you're trying to teach them or what you're trying to, how you're trying to help them. Okay, so one final talking point here that I uh, kind of reached out to you at first to talk about, 
primitive reflexes. And this is something I've actually referenced one time on the podcast with Matt Boulay of the IP Institute, because he does a lot with primitive reflexes and that's a big part of his methodology. So let's talk a little bit about what primitive reflexes are. Let's talk about some of those more prominent ones. Like you mentioned earlier, the fear paralysis reflex as being one that can really uh, influence uh, performance and your response to things. And then let's talk about, um, kind of how we can integrate and deal with some of these reflexes that you may encounter. And let's just start with what they are and why they aren't properly integrated. And then we'll get into the the what and the how and the why. Okay. So the primitive reflexes are kind of like, um, they're like a base level neurological language, really. Right. So when we're born, as you know, everyone's seen a a child that's first born, they, they don't really, they can't really do anything, but they can do certain functions. They can open their eyes. They can, they can get onto their mother's um, breast. That's a, that's a reflex. That's the rooting and sucking reflex. The way they get out of the birth canal is through uh, the ATNR reflex. We'll go into that in a sec. And they also have a startle response. And um, these are very gross, broad motor patterns, which should only be there for the first few months of life. And then as the nervous system starts to integrate to more complex movements, those gross motor patterns, those primitive reflexes are then inhibited. And most of those initial primitive ones are lower brainstem, so the medulla and the pons area. Hyperreflexes, that's going back to what we consider the reptilian brain, brain structures. So, you know, generally most of them around four months, most reflexes, should not be there, meaning they should be inhibited and other more fine motor responses, such as holding your head up, um, you know, lifting your head up, lifting your body up, starting to get that vestibular response, starting to roll, starting to sit, starting to crawl, and then eventually um, being able to stand and then um, go into gait. Basically, all of them revolve around getting us being able to walk because we know gait is the, the, the most fundamental and neurologically profound function because it's so complex, yeah, all those, all those uh, primitive reflexes are all to, to get us to that position. And once we're upright, then we can start engaging our, our cortical structures, right? And then we can start, but then there's a lot of pro- long process of learning. But what can sometimes happen is that <clears throat> either through an individual's development, there may have been traumas, uh, real or perceived, that could have in, impeded the inhibition of that reflex so what does that do then then there's a flow on effect from that and it's almost like the stops or delays the maturation the the maturing of the nervous system and if that's not dealt with throughout their life the system has no choice but to compensate another way that these reflexes may disinhibit so they may have been fully integrated in an individual but then something can happen like a, a severe traumatic brain injury, severe, severe trauma, life threat, um, and or like a concussion or whatever, and or like a stroke, uh, sort of things that will actually disinhibit these reflexes. Like like a lot of soldiers, you know, we've had a lot of guys over in the Middle East the last you know, 15, 20 years, especially from the US. There's a lot of soldiers that would, would potentially have had these these uh, reflexes triggered from, you know, IEDs and things like that, concussive responses. So depending on the reflex that's that's uh, disinhibited will depend on how much long-term, like how, how big the effect is. 
So for instance, like that we're talking about the fear paralysis reflex, that's probably most primitive because again, it's just, it's a, it's a reflex. It, it, it's about is the world safe or not? Okay. And if it's not safe, I'll go, I'll freak out and I'll make it, I'll go into a, like a parachute, um, go into extension and I'll cry. And then because I cry, then mum can come and, you know, see if I'm okay. It's a very mammalian re uh, reflex response, like, you know, monkeys and stuff have it. Once their the nervous system matures and the, the baby feels safe and it can start to go from there. And then there's other reflex such as the ATNR, which is the, the way the, 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 the eyes, the hand, the way the brain maps the eyes and the hand and the environment on one side of the brain and then on the other side. And that really ties into gait. And it really ties in with the vestibular system and the visual system. So this is where this becomes important because if you're someone that even considers working with the visual and vestibular, that's great. Obviously, you're already at a higher level just for even considering that. But sometimes you could do visual vestibular work and it won't hold because they have a retained reflex such as one of those ones, which is informing how the vestibular system is, is operating, basically. So you've got a bunch of other ones as well. You've got one that's related, you know, they've got one, like a, spin a spinal gland that's one about sensory stimuli on the back and you'll often see, you know, kids if they sit in their chair forwards and they don't have their back up against the chair because uh, they're trying to avoid stimulating that reflex. And they'll have you know, you know, poor abilities to, to concentrate at school and stuff like that. Uh, and that can also result in things such as, in a structural way, scoliosis and back pain and things like that, bedwetting as well. I heard you uh, reference something as well as like uh, one of them being for during birth. Uh, one thing I've seen spoken of as far as reflexes is if someone has a C-section, that could be one of the first uh, things that could potentially drive someone to have retained primitive reflexes. Am I correct in that? And uh, what have you, what have you familiarized yourself as far as retention in, in a C-section birth? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it can have effect on any of those reflexes. Um, but what the, because of what it does when they go through the birth canal, it, um, they get squeezed. So all their skin gets squeezed and that's kind of like um, activates and protects the skin sensors so they may have a higher level of threat perception in the skin. And then that will be more likely to have, because remember at this age, they're very basic, um, just a blob of reflexes really. Um, so that'd be more likely to, to activate these sort of fear response, fear paralysis, sort of moral reflex type of startle responses. That's my understanding of, of that. But it doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean because you, you're C-section that you, you will have this. And then there's many naturally birthed children who have trauma as well. Like for instance, birth trauma, you know, like going out too quickly, um, being pulled out, which is like I had a child like that the other day was pulled out, you know, before it was, it was meant to come out. It was pulled out by an ambulance, by an ambo, no paramedic, you know, these sort of things. And this, and this baby was in a, a lot of shock. Yeah. Look, definitely ties in definitely the, 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 you know, gestation birth, the type of birth, um, can have an impact on it, but it doesn't always. But you often find, I often find if people who have, like say, lots of retained reflexes by the time they're an adult, and this is anecdotal as well, they're more likely to have a chronic pain syndrome or a chronic fatigue syndrome. You, what you're saying is like, this is like the base level. Um, and if I'm being honest, you don't often hear primitive reflexes kind of referenced very often. That's why I kind of wanted to get that 
uh, perspective out there because you hear the visual, you hear, you hear the vestibular, you hear sensory and primitive reflexes have a ton to do with the sensory. Obviously we can kind of talk about that before kind of jumping off here, but it is a baseline that you said, if it's not there, then you will compensate. How you compensate? It's going to be through a postural means uh, and it's going to derive the way in which you move and, you know, focusing on athletic development. That's really big, especially with contact sports like rugby and, and football uh, where there's so much contact going on and there's so much deemed threat almost all the time. And just thinking through the lens of what I'm f- most familiar with, threat's just so much more prevalent than we realize. Uh, and we may be driven towards these responses more than we might would even realize, uh, even more than just severe trauma. So if we can talk a little bit about ways to integrate or look at these what I familiarize myself with is a lot of sensory integration so uh, if you could kind of just talk about that and helping to restore these primitive reflexes so when I first learned about the reflexes and, and how to inhibit them inhibit retained ones close to 10 years ago now and um, there was a variety of ways you could do it with sensory work and also um, brain exercises However, the brain gem exercises don't always work, and that's because the the threat signal may still be firing away in the nervous system. And it's like trying to give someone corrective exercise, but they're avoiding something related to that exercise. The drill's not going to work because um, there's there's some receptor or threat alarm going off in relation to that. So until that's sort of down-regulated, it's not going to turn off. So... Through you know um, a few of the functional neurology systems, it, it turns out a lot of um, stimuli that's on the on the cranium actually has a big deal to do with whether these reflexes actually disinhibit. And so by working through a settling down uh, kind of threat signals on the cranium, cranium, these reflexes turn off. Combine that with breath work and combine that with targeted um, movement drills. So there's like the parachute drill. Um, there is um, vestibular work. Vestibular work and visual work will feed into it as well, but it may not fully um, turn it off. So it's always going to be case by case. But in my work, the way I work, um, which is not something I can sort of explain and teach over this, is I will generally look to find the cause or the receptor that's causing the dysfunction in that reflex, which is usually up around the cranial area, I'll basically show the brain where it is, show where Wally is, and it will downregulate almost instantly. And uh, I have like a global effect on the nervous system. And and depending on the individual, they may have multiple things that are causing even just one reflex to be uh, hyperactive. But if you combine that with sensory work, um, so anything anything that changes the system's perception of threat will have an impact on that, an indirect and a direct impact. Things such as peripheral vision work. So, you know, in the PRI system, they talk about the left visual field, and I have find that. I I do see that a lot, but it's not always that because they might have been hit from the right-hand side as well, and there's 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 an old threat injury on that right side, so you may need to work right side. But clearing up the brain's perception of the, the peripheral vision field, massive effects, you know. Um, checking, um, checking their eye systems, uh, improving the way their eyes move, huge effect. Improving the way their vestibular system moves and, and, and the threshold within the, the, the vestibular system can function it has a huge effect on it. Breath work, doing these breath holds, 
massive effect on it. It's a it's an indirect way, but it will feed into it because it'll be contextual. Because whenever these reflexes are actually, especially those really high level base level ones, the fear paralysis, which turns into the morrow, which turns into the startle, they're all really three divisions of one reflex, extremely tied into the breath. For instance, the morrow is tied into a sharp inhale. The startle is tied into a sharp inhale too, but often you might see someone will have an inverse breathing pattern because you know when we, when we breathe in we should extend the spine when we breathe out we should be flexing the spine if someone is stuck in a startle response they may have an inverse so they'll breathe in and they'll flex and they'll breathe out and they'll extend so that's if you're trying to train breathing with someone and you see that you might go hmm there may be a startle response um, and the inhibition pattern for that would be if their head is moved backwards their extensors will inhibit. Yeah, and, and you see that all, all the time as far as like deflection and extension pattern being off in athletes. Like whenever I'm watching running uh, and even lifting as well, but I really like to look at it in running. That's, I mean, <laughs> whenever I film it, I see that. And that, that could be a great explanation as to why you see patterning issues between flexion and extension. Uh, something as small as the breathing patterning being off uh, with an athlete's because of, what you just referenced. I was going to reference the Moro uh, reflex earlier, but uh, good you threw that out there and kind of talked about how all those tie together. Uh, really nice there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's even in the Z Health thing, it was, uh, I think it was Dr. Cobb said, all movement is a synergy between flexion and extension, you know, and then it sort of branches out from there to through the frontal and transverse planes. It's, it's pretty cool when you start to look at things through that lens and, um, you can make some absolutely amazing changes with people if you you come into the it's all about coming in at the right level you know it's not saying it's always this it's always that mm. you know sometimes it's a bottom-up approach which is what they need and that's really important and it's the name of your um <laughs> podcast from the ground yeah. up right and and speaking to the periphery as well like just one final thing before kind of allowing you to talk about where people can find you and everything Anything that you can't perceive is going to be deemed as a threat whenever it surprises you, whenever it startles you, like we kind of talked about. I've seen, you know, we've talked a lot of neurological considerations. Sean Sherman shared several times how quickly you can increase people's periphery and thus reduce the threat uh, and clear that. Because anything that I don't see will startle me. It's like coming around a corner and somebody popping out. It startles you. It's a natural fear response, right? So the more we open ourselves uh, to the world to experience and to be, actually be able to see like whenever you've been on a computer all day, whenever you've been with your phone in front of you, everything is extremely uh, you're, you're in virgins all the time. You know, we could get into visual stuff and all that here, but we actually are building ourselves in this modern day and age to be more uh, and not to be able to see the periphery. Therefore there's much more threat on the periphery. hundred percent. Like it, it's only a threat if, if your brain hasn't mapped it. And so, it, like with that peripheral vision, it's, it's extremely fast. You'll just get someone to touch their nose, look straight ahead, touch their nose, touch your finger, which is often the periphery, and you can see it'll clear up sensory, like it'll clear up these like kind of smudging of the maps within seconds. Same with the auditory system, you know, you get them to close their eyes, make a sound, get them to the point where they think the sound is. They might be off, but then within one or two reps, their brain's dialed in, and that has a huge impact decreasing threat overall so therefore when they go out into the world then um you know their brain has a bit of better sort of external map of their environment which is going to keep them less likely to go into that threat, uh, threat response 
Awesome, man. Well, just to kind of close up here, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you, anything that you have out there, anything that you want to any offerings you have or anything like that. Uh, just giving you an opportunity to tell people where to find you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm mainly active on uh, Instagram. So it's functional neuro health, um, just all one word there. And, uh, you know, I've got a website and stuff. I've got a YouTube channel. I do a few videos on every now and then. Um, it's uh, pretty busy. I'm trying to get uh, more into the online learning platform and also running some certifications uh, around my, my brain-based approach, which will be first done in person then online. And that'll be sometime this year. And, uh, but I do have a few courses. Um, I've, got, uh, I've got one on breathing. I've got one on chronic pain and looking at through a brain approach. Um, and I've got one on uh, movement maps and, and one other as well. So that's all on my link tree through my Instagram page. That's probably the, the, the area where you can find me the most. If you message me on that, I'll usually try and reply back as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Awesome. I'll have all that linked. Uh, and again, you know, anybody that's listening, if you don't already follow Nick, uh, do do hit the follow button because I love all the different stuff that he posts. He always has quality posts and that make me think. And, you know, there's just so many different things that we've covered today. It's easy to like really pigeonhole yourself uh, whenever you're thinking about neurology and focus on this area or that area. But you really have a, a wide depth in the things that you cover uh, and the things that you offer. Um, so I've really enjoyed all the different content I've seen you share. That's what kind of piqued my interest to get you on the show. I'm glad we were able to make it work out. And I just want to thank you for taking uh, time to sit down with me and, and record. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks, mate. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the notes for links to Nick's socials, as well as website and course offerings. If you listen regularly, don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up with the latest content. Don't forget on Apple, you can leave up to a five-star rating and review if you feel led to do so.